Well, I want to welcome you this morning, all here in our celebration service, uh, those across the way in our summit service, all those who have joined us online. If you have your Bible, turn with me uh, to the book of 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings 4. You know, sometimes when you're getting into the water, you wade in just a little bit, get your toes wet, you test the temperature of the water. Uh, but sometimes you just belly flop into the deep end. Well, this message is a belly flop into the deep end. Uh, there are no stories. There are no little funny jokes that we're going to tell. I just want to get into the deep end. We're going to go fast, swim hard, and then we'll slow down. And I want to share with you a story. After we've covered some of the uh, more difficult material, I want to tell you a story, show you an event that happens in 2 Kings 4 uh, that I think will energize and motivate us uh, to embrace what we learn in the beginning. The subject this morning is the subject of evangelism. Now, I promise I'm not going to beat you over the head with this subject. My goal is not to make anybody feel guilty because they don't do more evangelism. I want to teach you. I want to teach you the mechanics of evangelism as they're described to us in the Bible. The word evangelism is a familiar word for most of us. It is a biblical word, yet it's not in your Bible. Uh, most English translations, at least most English translations you are aware of, uh, do not include the word evangelism, uh, but underneath some words, we find in the original language the Greek word evangelism, or euangelizo, as they would have pronounced it, but it's translated into our Bibles simply with the telling of the good news. I'll read one verse to you that perhaps gives it its best introduction. Acts 8.35 says, Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus. That's the word evangelism, used 54 times in the Greek New Testament. It's a compound word. The beginning of the word means good. The middle of the word means, uh, to, uh, means information. And the ending of the word makes it, a, makes it a verb. And so when we tell the information, the good news, we're doing evangelism. Now, why is evangelism important for us? Well, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. First, it's important because of its content. Uh, the, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, I'm sorry, the book of Romans chapter 3, that there is revealed a way to be right with God that does not involve perfection. Now, we know that if a person could be perfect, then you would be right with God. But none of us have been, and none of us will be perfect. And so Romans 3 says, there has been revealed a way for us to be right with God that does not include us being perfect. That is important information, right? If there's a way for me to be united with God other than perfection, which I've blown and so have you, then that way is important. It's the content of the gospel that makes it important. But also, it's the timing of the gospel. You see, good news is not good news unless you receive it on time. If, 
if I had uh, a easy miracle cure for cancer, but I brought you that cure the day after you succumbed to cancer, uh, it would not be good news for you, right? Because it wasn't on time. So the gospel is good news because of its content and its timing. Now, what are the mechanics? How exactly does a person come to know the Lord? How is a person adopted into the family of God? What are the mechanics of evangelism? Well, I'll give you three. We'll go through this pretty quickly. Remember, we're in the deep end, but we'll slow down in a moment. Number one, evangelism proclaims a biblical gospel. Evangelism proclaims a biblical gospel. Now, we're going to jump through a lot of scripture verses before we get to 2 Kings 4, but I'll show these to you on the screen. Galatians 1, 6, and 7, Paul wrote, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So what is this other gospel that he's talking about? Well, people were coming in amongst these Christians to whom Paul is writing, and they were adding some things. They were saying you needed to do some things. If you could just achieve some things, if you could keep some rules, that through that you could be right with God. And that was not the gospel. That was other than, that was different from the gospel. And all through history, people have been proclaiming something that is not the true gospel. People have been searching for other ways to be right with God. People have suggested you could just do enough good to be right with God, that you could try harder, that you could be sincere, you could believe something, that you could uh, undergo some religious ceremony or just generally be a kind person and that would be enough. But friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus and what Jesus has done for us for the forgiveness of our sins and our trusting Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Now, let me read the next couple of verses from Galatians 1. He goes on to say, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to what you have, uh, contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. So our proclamation as a church, as Christians, our proclamation must be centered on Christ. See, that's the gospel. Uh, when I served as a pastor in Ohio, there was a church not far from my church that had one of those marquee signs, you know, where you could put a message out. That gets churches in trouble more than it helps them. Uh, but this church, and I don't remember the exact words, but I can remember my anger uh, when I read the words. It essentially said uh, to all of the passerbys, you need to follow the Ten Commandments or you will suffer the consequences. Now, what do you think about that? I'll tell you, that's not the gospel, right? That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't try harder to do better, to be better, and God will be impressed with that, and you'll avoid the consequences of your sin. That's not the gospel. That's poison. 
Shame on that church. The apostle Paul would say, curse to that church. Listen, we're a church and our focus, the center of our message has to be the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, that our only hope is Jesus, not keeping the rules so that we don't suffer the consequences, but Jesus, but Jesus. If our proclamation does not include somewhere in there that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, then no matter what kind of nice or therapeutic or motivating or uplifting words it may have, it's not the gospel. For many people, their spirituality, the way in which they come close to God is by trying harder, is by coming to church is by doing churchy things. But they've never come to the Lord and said, I'm guilty of sin. And I know that that sin separates me from you and there's no hope me changing that except for what Jesus has done for me on the cross. And I believe that's enough. And I trust in that for my salvation. And I'll follow you the rest of my life out of my thankfulness for that. If you've never done that, that's the gospel. Not follow the Ten Commandments or suffer the consequences, but Jesus is the gospel, the good news. Now, let me chase a rabbit. I want to do this a couple of times in the message, and I'll get in trouble for this. Uh, We'll get out by 1, 2 o'clock today. But there are, church, many good and noble pursuits. There are many important issues Uh, in this world uh, that are not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have many organizations. I'm just thinking of organizations in our community. So many organizations that uh, serve those needs. They're good organizations and critical organizations that feed people, that help people find jobs, that house people that are going through difficult times. I think about uh, the boys club and the girls club or the girls and boys club. I think about uh, all kind of, all kind, I could name a dozen of them and so can you. And many of them are led by First Baptist and Akadoches people and I am thankful for every one of those. They are critical But listen, the church, this church, is a gospel organization. And everything here must be centered on the proclamation of the gospel. Not because we don't think there are other needs or we don't think other organizations are important and critical, but because that's our assigned task. Jesus has created the church. He has instituted the church. He has sent the church to proclaim the gospel. And the Bible makes that so, so clear. That's our assigned task. Now, the second thing I want you to see about the gospel, we're back on track now, I think, uh, is evangelism includes multiple phases. And uh, this won't be new to you. You've heard this, but I want you to think about this. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, there is a description of ministry that's very interesting. The the Apostle Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So Paul says in the sharing of the gospel, there are at least three roles here. Paul did something he called planting. 
Then Apollos, uh, uh, another minister there, he did something that Paul called watering. And then God is the one that gave it growth. Without, well, with some exceptions, rarely does a person become a child of God in just one big sudden step. Somebody will come and share a testimony afterwards with me out in the ministry fair about how you just, just one time, and I will rejoice with you over that. But generally, over a period of months or years, maybe decades, someone planted and maybe somebody else planted and somebody else and then somebody watered and somebody else watered. And eventually the Lord used that to soften your heart, help you understand your need for Christ. And finally, you have come to the gospel. The Bible says God gave it growth. Now, what does that teach us? The fact that there are these different phases. Well, it teaches us, first of all, for us not to get frustrated when we share the gospel or we extend an invitation for somebody to come hear the gospel and there's no good response. I mean, don't, don't be frustrated with that. Of course we want people to respond. We want people to respond positively and immediately. But even when there's no response, your sharing could very well be part of the process of planting or watering so that one day, a week from now, a year from now, a decade from now, that person, God, will make it, make it grow. And then the second, and it's closely related, the second thing it teaches us is don't think that any opportunity you have to share the gospel or to invite someone to come and hear the gospel, never think an opportunity is unimportant. You know, when somebody makes a profession of faith, that's what we call that, when someone follows Christ and God forgives them, uh, we usually point to uh, the person or the event that shared with them at that point of decision. Well, the pastor preached a message. Well, Sally shared her faith. Well, Bob shared his testimony. And that's okay. The Bible says, uh, beautiful are the feet of those that bring the gospel. But I think from a biblical perspective, and we'll see from a heavenly perspective, that it'll turn out that when somebody comes to know Christ, that the two-year-ago two invitation they got to church may be just as instrumental as the person that shared the gospel right before they made a decision. You know, all of us cannot be harvesters, and we do not harvest all the time. That's not how farming works. There has to be somebody who plants, and then there has to be somebody who waters the plant. And then our prayer is that there will be a harvest. Uh, now, the third, third thing I want you to learn about evangelism, the mechanics of evangelism. Evangelism demands patient urgency. Patient urgency. Uh, that's, uh, I just made that up. That's an oxymoron, sort of like eating a whole piece of pie. I'm still working on that. Um, but let me explain. In Luke chapter 14, there's a parable uh, that Jesus gives where he describes this great banquet, and it's a picture of people coming into the kingdom of God. Uh, 
And we'll teach that whole parable one day in a sermon, but let me just take you to the next to the last verse. I'll show it to you on the screen, I think, but it's verse 23 that says, the master told the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. Now, there's no force or coercion, certainly no manipulation implied here, but there's patient urgency. We must always bring the gospel with kindness. Bible says love is patient and kind, not arrogant, rude, or irritable. There's never an excuse to be anything other than loving when we bring the gospel. But we can't bring the gospel with the same frame of mind that we recommend our favorite restaurant. We must have an urgency. We must recognize that this is life or death. This is eternal life or death. I remember about a year ago, I was uh, here at the Memorial Hospital and uh, uh, somebody was in the emergency room and uh, one of... Uh, one of the surgeons in our church was going in to, to do emergency surgery and uh, a brain surgery. It was very, uh, very difficult, uh, very, uh, it was a crisis. And I spoke with the, uh, with the surgeon just as he was walking in. He didn't have time to stop and talk, but uh, I thought about the weight, the gravity on that man's shoulders he's about to go in and cut somebody's head open and operate on their brain. And I thought, what a, boy, you talk about pressure. But evangelism is way more important than that. Because it's not just a matter of life or death. It's a matter of eternal life. It's a matter of eternal death. And so evangelism demands patient urgency. Let me sum up what we've learned. Evangelism is important. It must be about what Jesus has done. It usually involves uh, multiple people being obedient in this process over a long period of time. It ultimately, though, is God drawing and saving. Uh, but God usually uh, does his work through our agency. And we talked about that last week. And finally, not only is the gospel important, but it's urgent. Now, with that in mind, I want us to look at 2 Kings 4. This is my second favorite uh, historical event described in the Old Testament. The, the first being 2 Samuel 9 that we uh, preached on a little while ago. Uh, I can't believe I've been here over six years that have never preached on 2 Kings 4. Uh, and now I just have opportunity to preach a half a sermon on it because we're running out of time. But I love this, this story, this event. So we're going to go through it pretty quickly. Let me read. 2 Timothy, 2 Kings, thank you. Last week I tested some of you with my Bible references. And I want to tell you that many of you failed the test. But... Uh, I am. But now we're in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. It says, One of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, has died, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. Now the creditor is coming to take away my two children as his slaves. 
Now this uh, likely was the wife of Obadiah, not the Obadiah who wrote the book of Obadiah, but the Obadiah from 1 Kings who was the servant of Ahab and who risked his life to rescue, uh, to protect many of the prophets of the Lord uh, when Jezebel uh, was seeking to kill them. And uh, this, uh, uh, this man had died and his, his wife, his two sons remained and there was a great debt that he owed that now has been transferred to the two of them. And so uh, Mrs. Obadiah, uh, she prays in a sense. She goes to the prophet who would have been the spokesperson for God in those days. And so in a sense, essentially she's going to God, she's praying. And uh, we'll, we'll read what, uh, what the Lord says through his prophet in the next few verses. But let, let me take another uh, chase, one more rabbit here, okay? Uh, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 5, 8, uh, that's an obscure verse. I, I imagine you don't know that verse, but I'll read it. If anyone does not provide for his own family, especially his own household, he is denied the faith and he is worse than an unbeliever. Men, this is the verse aimed primarily at me and you. And what this verse says is that a significant part of honoring God, of living the Christian life, is providing for your family, is making sure you're taking care of your family. And men, listen. That responsibility doesn't end when you die. And as a pastor, I've talked to uh, many Mrs. Obadiahs through the years uh, where they were unprovided for uh, when the husband, the father, died. Now, Obadiah uh, likely uh, didn't have an insurance agent. None is mentioned. Timothy probably didn't have one either. But you do. And so, and I promise this is not a paid advertisement, okay? It could be if somebody wants to pay me, but men, I think it's a Christian thing. It's Christian responsibility. Unless you have enough wealth that your family would never have to worry when you die, buy life insurance. A man who doesn't take care of his family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Men, don't get too much life insurance because there could be some danger in that. <laughs> but you should, have a, you should have enough. I am. Listen, can I chase a rabbit while I'm chasing a rabbit? Chasing another animal maybe. Um, this... Uh, I think this verse, I think this is a verse that men, young men, let me just talk to young men. This is a verse you need to embrace. It needs to, needs to sink deep into your hearts. The Bible says that men, we're to take care of our families, provide for our household, or we have denied the faith 
and we're worse than an unbeliever. Men, a part of providing for your household is that you live in your household. Part of providing for your family is that you stay in your family. You understand? You can't say that you're providing for your family when you abandon your family. Now listen, I know we all have a past and we can't undo our past, but we also have a future and we can determine our future. And as a, as a father, as a man, it is my responsibility as a Christian to stay in the family that I'm in and to take care of my wife and to take care of my children and to not do that. Listen, these are God's words. Write God the letter. To, to, to not take care of my family is to deny my faith and to be worse than an unbeliever. I have only lost my temper one time with a church member in 35 years of ministry. And it was about six months ago when somebody came and told me that he had found a, a woman with a prettier face and God wanted him to go and live with that woman instead of the woman that he had had kids with. And listen, I'd be embarrassed for you to know everything that I told that man. But here's the gist of it. You have denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. Worse than an unbeliever. We need to protect. We need to provide for our families. Man, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, this verse says to be a Christian man, one of the central, critical parts of that is providing for your family in every way. Uh, uh, you... Um, your family, your marriage is a mess and your wife doesn't like you anymore, and, uh, then, then fix it. Uh, if you can't fix it, then suck it up and just be a man, okay? Because to not provide for our family is to deny the faith. We're worse than an unbeliever. All right, verse two. I don't know, you didn't know that was in verse one. Uh, but uh, I'm going to calm down. And verse 2, Elisha asked her, what can I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. So all she had was a little bit of oil. That wasn't going to do any good. And uh, Elisha asked her about that. Elisha's the prophet. And uh, that's what that's how she replies. Look at verse three. Then he said, go out, borrow empty containers from all of your neighbors. Don't get just a few. Now, that's a pretty odd uh, instruction. Uh, she is desperate for money uh, so that these creditors don't come take her children away. And the prophet, speaking for the Lord, says, go out and get a bunch of empty jars. Get a bunch of them. Verse four, he gives a further instruction. He says, then go in and shut the door behind you and your son and pour oil into all of these containers. Set the full ones to one side. Now this was crazier still because all she had was a little bit of oil. And now he has told her to go out and find all of these jars, bring them in, close the door, take her little oil and start filling up the jars. That's an impossibility. I imagine most of us would have just checked out with the prophet at this point. Uh, never mind, I came for real help. This isn't what I needed. But verse 5 says, she left, and after she had shut the door behind her and her sons, uh, they kept bringing her containers 
and she kept pouring. That's the, that's the amazing part. She poured, poured that first, uh, uh, into that first empty jar. Nothing extraordinary seemed to happen, but when it was filled up and she tipped her jar back over, it was still heavy with oil. So she said, hand me another jar. And she poured, careful not to spill even a drop. She poured into that jar. She turned it over. It's still heavy with oil. Look at verse 6. When they were full, all the jars, she said to her son, bring me another. But he replied, there aren't, there are not any more. Then the oil stopped. Then the oil, oil stopped. Verse 7, she went and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil, pay your debt. You and your sons can live on the rest. So, as I said, my favorite, second favorite story in the, in the Old Testament, uh, it gives us, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 tells us this, uh, 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 an incredible illustration about how we are to live our Christian lives. And I think it speaks specifically to this idea of evangelism. So she found, Mrs. Obadiah, she found the formula for God's favor. Let me then now take this formula and just enumerate it. Let me give you one, two, three, four. What was the formula for God's favor that she discovered? Number one, recognize the Lord's necessity. Uh, if you're looking for the favor of God, the provision of God, the hand of God, it starts with recognizing that we have a need and ultimately the only fulfillment of that need, the only solution to that problem is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Mrs. Obad Obadiah identified the problem. You see it in verse one, the creditor is coming to take away my two children uh, as a single mom, I'm sure she was frantic over the thought of losing her children. She knew the problem. She knew the consequence. Her children were going to be gone. That's step one. We have to recognize the necessity of the Lord intervening in our situation. So let me talk about evangelism and let me talk about Easter at the Colosseum. So we need to identify the problem and the consequence. So the problem is this, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our fellow students, they have a thousand things going on in their lives, very busy. And in addition to that, they have financial pressure and family stress and work conflicts. They're struggling, some of them with health issues. Some of them are angry or depressed or anxious. Some are lonely, brokenhearted or grieved. But what they really need, whether they know it or not, is Jesus Christ. That's what they need. And whether right now life is very difficult for them or whether right now they are living a charmed life, we know what they need is the gospel. So we've identified the need. Now let's talk about the consequences. Everybody lives forever somewhere. You've heard me say that a few times. Everybody, everybody lives forever somewhere. Bible says it this way, it's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body and the soul, but fear the one that can throw the body and soul into an eternal hell if you don't find forgiveness for your sins. 
So the first component in the formula to know God's favor is to recognize the true nature of the problem. Why are we doing Easter at the Colosseum 2023? Just in one short, brief answer, because the people in Nacogdoches need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So number two, the second component in our formula for God's favor, we must request the Lord's intervention. So what's the first thing Mrs. Obadiah did? She prayed, in a sense, she went to God through the prophet. We see that in verse one. The process of evangelism is never effective without the work of God, the hand of God. We already saw in 1 Corinthians, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. And so we pray. I hope you will make prayer a significant part of your evangelism to your friends, your family, your coworkers, your fellow students. I hope you will pray for Easter at the Colosseum, that you'll pray for all the people that you know that could come and hear the gospel, that you'll pray for people you don't know, that you'll pray for all the little details, the thousand things that have to come together for this to be a success. We must pray. You see, we can plant and we can water, but it is only God who gives the growth. We must pray. We'll say more about this next week, but the Thursday night before Easter, 6 p.m., uh, we're going to gather in our Family Life Center and for one hour. That is the, the night, the Thursday before Thanksgiving, that the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. So we're going to come together that Thursday night. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And we're going to honor the Lord in that way. But here's what we're going to, we're going to take most of our time. And we're just going to pray, pray. Let us pray. Had Mrs. Obadiah not prayed, had she not gone to God's man, Elisha, she would not have seen the provision in the favor of the Lord. Number three. We must obey the Lord's instruction. So the Lord gave her specific instructions and her obedience was critical. Had she not obeyed, had she not gone out and gotten the jars, then she wouldn't have received the blessing. She, she would have been taken, her sons would have been taken by the creditors. The obedience, her obedience was critical. Now, this brings up some obvious questions. And I think sometimes we ought to ask even the uncomfortable questions. Why did the Lord send her out to get all of these empty jars when God could have just given her the oil, right? Why didn't, why didn't Elisha say, listen, go home, there'll be 500 jars of oil all packaged with your Amazon UPS label and you can sell them on eBay. Why did he say go out and get the jars? Why didn't God just give her the money? Why didn't God just satisfy the creditors? Here's the answer. God has chosen to work through the obedience of his people. You can think that's a good idea or a bad idea. <laughs> um, but God has chosen to work 
through the obedience of his people. When God raised Lazarus, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, do you remember what he did? He told the men to roll away the stone. Come on, Jesus, if you're going to raise somebody from the dead, you can take care of the stone. Yeah, he could. But God wanted to work through the obedience of his people. When God was going to send the great flood, but he wanted to rescue some people, uh, Noah's family, he told Noah to build an ark. Um, I would have questioned that. God, build your own ark, right? <laughs> um, why did God tell Noah to build an ark? That was a pretty, that was a pretty tough assignment. Because God works through the obedience of his people. When Jesus wanted to turn water into wine at the wedding feast, he told the people to go get the buckets and fill them to the brim with water. He's already going to do a miracle. What does he need their help? Because God wants to work through the obedience of his people. And the reason God told this woman to go and get the jars because God wanted to work through her obedience. Evangelism. In God's wisdom, he has chosen to do evangelism, to win people to himself, to forgive people of their sins through partnership with us. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. God will save people, but the onus is on us to go and share the gospel. It's on us to go and get the jars, to go into the highways and the hedges and compel them to go in. I've shared this story with a number of you as we've talked about Easter in recent weeks, but uh, I've heard it said, I'm not, a, I'm not a surfer, never been surfing in any kind of real sense, uh, but surfers say, uh, that you cannot create the perfect wave, but you can be on your board out in the ocean ready when it comes. Does that make sense? Listen, we don't create waves here. We, we will not save a person. I have never forgiven someone of their sin against the Lord. We can't do any of those things. But you know what we can do? We can be on the surfboard we can be in the water so when God sends the wave, we're ready. We can have our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers in the water so that they can ride the wave that the Lord, that the Lord will send. Uh, we can't save people, but we can go and get the jars. We can, be, we can encourage people to be here under the hearing of the gospel as we come together for Easter at the Coliseum. Number four, uh, trust the Lord's timing. And so we saw in verse 5 that she shut the doors uh, to her home and they began to pour the oil and it, she filled up every container she had. Uh, I imagine that her hands were shaking. She didn't know if she's going to look like a fool in front of her sons if nothing happens. But she trusts the Lord and she does it and God provides. Listen, when we trust the Lord in his timing, nothing is impossible for him. And with evangelism, there is no person you know that's beyond the Lord's salvation. 
There's no person so bad, so far gone, so without moral direction that there's no hope. We must not write off anybody as impossible. We must trust the Lord, gather the jars. Now, I'm sure that Mrs. Obadiah and her two boys, I'm sure they celebrated. Every time she filled up another jar, they must have high-fived. They probably did the chicken dance. I don't know. They celebrated. Spike to the ball. They celebrated. But there was in this story a low point. There was a moment of regret. And we see it right there in verse 6. She says, bring me another container. But he replied, there are not any more. And the oil stopped. Now, let's just put some numbers. We're speculating. Let's say that they went out and got 100 containers, empty jars. If they got 100 empty jars, I'm going to test you here, quiz you here. If they got 100 empty jars, how many jars did the Lord fill? A hundred, right? I hope the summit service got that better than the celebration service, but it filled a hundred jars. Okay, time to redeem yourself, celebration. If, if she would have gotten a hundred and fifty jars, how many jars would the Lord have filled? 150, right? And 200 and 300 and 400. Here's what I want you to see. Um, we, 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 don't, we don't push this far. We're not prosperity gospel people. But at least for this widow, the favor of the Lord, the provision of the Lord was directly proportional to her obedience and her trust, right? What if she'd have gotten three jars? How many would the Lord have filled? Three jars. I think it's fair and it's biblically and historically to say the more we work, the more we are obedient, the greater the favor of lives, the favor of God in the lives of the people we minister to. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 tells us that whoever sows sparingly, if you just put a little seed in the ground, will reap sparingly. But whoever sows abundantly will reap abundantly. The oil stopped. The oil stopped. I wonder, though they would have been thankful for the blessings of God, if there wasn't just a, a half moment there when they thought, I wish I would have gotten some oil jars. Just a moment when they, one of them might have thought, I wish I would have walked up that last hill and asked to borrow that big jar that Mr. Walker keeps on his front porch, if only. If only. I believe the Lord's going to do something great Easter at the Colosseum because I believe everybody there will hear the gospel. They'll see it and in our passion and excitement for the resurrection. They will sing it in the songs. They will hear it in the sermon, the prayers. I believe the Lord is going to do something great Easter at the Colosseum 2023. But we don't control that, right? We'll, we, the staff, the leaders, we'll be ready. You'll be ready. The Lord's the one that sends the wave. But we can bring the jars. And the more jars we bring, 
the greater potential God has to help people take the next step. Whether it's the final step, I don't know, but the next step. So here's what I want to do. I hope on your way in, you picked up 10 marbles. And uh, I hope your kids have not eaten any of them and you still have all 10. I got this idea from a, from a friend here in town, another minister here in town does this personally. Here's what I want to ask you to do. I'm mixing metaphors now, but I didn't want to give you 10 jars. It would have been a hassle for you to carry around. I want you to take these 10 marbles and I want you to put them in your right pocket and I want you to leave them there and remove a marble only when you extend an invitation and you go after a jar. So if you walk to your neighbor's house today and you say, I know you don't attend our church or maybe, I don't know if you're a church person, but we're going to do Easter at the Coliseum this year. That's where they play basketball. So you know it's got to be fun. Won't you join us? It's one hour and 10 minutes. Won't you join us for Easter at the Coliseum this year? And then you take your marble out of your right pocket and you put it in your left pocket. Okay? You got a jar. At least extended an invitation for a jar. You asked for a jar. Listen, you get all your marbles moved. Don't lose your marbles. I had to say that, you know. We're going to have containers starting next week. We'll have containers right here. You can bring your marbles back. Uh, somebody asked this morning if they could keep the marbles. Well, I hope not. Because uh, I want you to bring them back. And I want us to have, we bought 7,000 marbles. Your tithe money is well spent. Um, I, want us, I want us to have a big bowl of marbles as a visible reminder of the faithfulness and obedience of our church to go out and get as many jars as we can get and then pray the Lord will fill them. Head bowed, eyes closed. Father in heaven, we're doing this for no reason other than God is great and worthy of our worship. Help us to see the jars, to get the jars, to bring the jars for the glory of God. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond to the Lord.